You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In his latest book, The Wood Between the Worlds, Brian Zahn gives us a beautiful accounting of the meaning of the cross of Christ. As Brian points out in his book, we are offered a number of images and metaphors and ways to understand the cross in the New Testament itself. Brian helps us to move beyond the idea that God's ability to forgive is predicated on the necessity of God punishing Christ on the cross instead of us. Brian helps us to see that on the cross, we see God in Christ defeating the power of sin, death, and evil by submitting to our violence and thereby, in love, healing the world. Brian's vision of the meaning of the cross came to him, at least partly, in a kind of visionary way. Prompted by the Spirit, Brian meditated on each of the crucifixes he came to as he walked the Camino de Santiago. And so the collective experience of meditating on actual crucifixes was the central impetus for this book. And today we get to share with Brian some of the insights he gained without having to walk the 500 miles of the Camino Santiago. Welcome back, BZ, Brian Zond, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. Good to be back with you. Well, so Brian, what's a guy with a Protestant background like you doing walking hundreds of miles all over Spain, staring at crucifixes? We Protestants like our pretty shiny empty crosses without the ugly bleeding Christ perpetually affixed upon it. Yet somehow the crucifixes you meditated upon became beautiful and even revelatory to you. Brian, to put it in common language, what's this thing with you and crucifixes all about? Well, first of all, I'm a Protestant by default. I'm a Protestant simply because I'm not Catholic or Orthodox. I'm not really protesting anything. So what I really am is deeply ecumenical. I mean, I haven't always been that way, but I've been that way for probably nigh on 20 years. And um, Perry and I, we have walked the Camino de Santiago now four times. But uh, most recent, just this past fall, but uh, this was our first one. And we're walking it because we walk, We were walking it for the reason that almost every American that walks the Camino de Santiago does so. And that's because they saw the movie with Martin Sheen, The Way. And they just said, I have to do that. And so we were doing that. But I did feel like the Spirit gave me instructions to enter every church I could, pay attention to the crucifix, ask what this means, and don't be too quick to give an answer. So I did. And, uh, you know, I understand that Protestants are a little more, they lean toward the more abstract uh, geometric design of a cross rather than a crucifix. I'm not here, you know, to argue one or the other other than to say that a crucifix, te- crucifix tells a story in a way that a cross doesn't. I mean, a cross, yeah, a cross feels a little, little like a logo, like a swoosh or something. Like a, like a swoosh, like a logo, like a, a mathematical sign or something. But uh, you see a crucifix and you go, even if you wouldn't know what's going on, you would say, well, there's something going on here. There's, there's a story behind this. 
And because we were on pilgrimage and we're moving, I'm not seeing the same crucifix over and over. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing different ones multiple times a day, and none, no two were exactly alike. In uh, some, Jesus was portrayed as regal. Some, you saw the true horror of crucifixion. Some, Jesus seemed serene and peaceful. Some, Jesus was clearly suffering. And so that began to work on me that, that there's more than one way of looking at the cross, more than one legitimate way mm-hmm. of looking at the cross. I'm not saying that every you know cockamamie idea somebody might have about the meaning of the cross is legitimate, but I am saying that to reduce the cross to a single atonement theory is just to be way too dismissive. It's like, okay, I can sum up the meaning of the cross in a doctrinal statement in two sentences and then... Thank you very much. We're done with that. Next question, please. And that seems to be a horrendous mistake. And it was that experience way back in 2016, that was the first time we walked it, that opened my eyes maybe further to the idea that uh, we can have an ongoing conversation about the cross, or as I say in the book, a kaleidoscopic discussion about the cross. So we look at the cross and we see one thing, but within a slight alteration, we see something else, and then we see something else. So, um, yeah, and, and that and that historically, the Camino de Santiago is understood or is in fact a Catholic pilgrimage. <laughs> that means nothing to me. I mean, I'm fine. I mean, I mean, you know, last year I led a I led a retreat for a monastery of Benedictine nuns. So, I travel in wide circles. Well, in the book, you take us back to some of the earliest ways Christians understood the cross, writing, The language of ransom was the most common metaphor used by the church fathers to interpret the cross. Modern theologians refer to this interpretation as the ransom theory of atonement, though the ancient Christians would not have called it a theory. For them, it was simply the language they used to talk about Christ's triumph over death. But ransom language can be misleading for modern people if we allow Calvin's theory and imagine the death of Christ as a ransom paid to God. No. St. Basil the Great speaks of this when he says of Christ, He gave himself as a ransom to death, in which we were held captive, sold under sin, descending through the cross into hell that he might fill all things with himself. He loosed the pangs of death. He arose on the third day, having made for all flesh a path to the resurrection from the dead. So could you tell us more about this ransom idea and how central the defeat of death was to early Christian understanding of what happened on the cross? Yeah, I really like talking about this. Um, the, 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 the most common metaphorical language for the meaning of the cross in the patristic era would involve the word ransom, which does appear uh, in gospel text, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But where modern people <laughs> make a fatal error is they imagine the ransom being paid to God, as if God were the, the kidnapper, as if God were the hostage taker. No, the, the ransom is not paid to God. The ransom is paid by God through his son to death. And the church fathers, in preaching on it, they would say death or often the devil. They would say the devil. But there's, it's more complicated than that. 
because it was a ransom that the devil should never have taken because there's a trick involved. And that's, that's, this is patristic language that in swallowing up, you know, death could take Christ, swallow Christ, if you want to use that term, uh, because he was mortal, right? Mm-hmm. Christ is fully human, but he's also fully divine. And once death has swallowed divinity, it is going to be entirely undone. And so they would, they like to use the story of Jonah and and they connect Jonah with Christ and the great fish vomiting up uh, Jonah. But they said, no, the great fish of hell doesn't just vomit up Jesus Jonah, but all that was in the stomach of the of the great fish. In other words, uh, hell is being emptied because of this one ransom that death should never have taken. So that's so ransom is a good metaphor, a good language, both scriptural and and uh, patristic. But you just got to get right who the ransom is paid to. It's not paid to God. It's paid uh, to sin and death. Yeah, I think the, in the in the Greek word, I think it's a lutron, which is a mm-hmm. manumission a manumission fee right. that's paid for the freeing of a slave. Exactly, and so who who had enslaved humanity? Not God the Father, but sin and death, and that's what it had enslaved us. Exactly. Well, about the but, inclusion, but, but I just want to stress. I think if you talk about you know even today in in our hymnology and contemporary songs, the word ransom. Uh, in talking about the death of Christ, shows up regularly. And yet I think that an awful lot of modern, particularly American Christians, somehow imagine that ransom being paid to God, uh, which which then involves the idea that Jesus is saving us from God, and now we've just gone off the rails. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a good metaphor if we can follow it correctly. The ransom is paid to sin and death, and it becomes death's undoing. And by the way, this is what it, this is, in fact, what is set forth in C.S. Lewis's *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, when um, when Aslan becomes the ransom to reduce to rescue Edmund. Uh, well, the witch doesn't know the deeper magic, and no, doesn't know that in fact all of Narnia is going to be liberated. Yeah. And, and the stone table is going to crack. And so uh, C.S. Lewis had read his patristics, and he knew how, how these first theologian preachers dealt with the cross, and that's what he works into his book. Yeah, I, I want to get to that a little bit later on. But um, for right now, about the inclusion, I'm interested in about the inclusion of all humanity in the cross. Mm-hmm. You write, it is crucial to note that the that early Christian theology never spoke of the resurrection as merely a personal victory of Christ over death. Rather, it spoke of the resurrection as a cosmic victory. The whole point of Christ descending into death was to rescue those held captive by death. St. Ambrose stressed this in the funeral sermon he preached for his brother, in which he said, quote, If Christ did not rise for us, then he did not rise at all, since he had no need of it just for himself. In him, the world rose. In him, heaven rose. In him, the earth rose, unquote. And then you add your own summation, Christ died to raise the world. So could you say a little more about the dying and the rising of the world in Christ? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, 
we become very reductive in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in modern Western Christianity. And so that we just sort of tag the resurrection on as a happy ending to the gospel story, that somehow um, atonement is, is made, that's all good and well, but Jesus still has to die. But that's all right because, you know, he's raised from the dead. This is not how the early church, or the scriptures for that matter, talk about it. Rather, that Christ goes down into death that he might liberate all that are held captive by death. And th this is Paul in Ephesians working very creatively with Psalm 68, saying that, that Jesus took captivity captive so that when Christ entered into death, ostensibly as a captive of death, he wasn't a captive of death. He was a conqueror, and it was an invasion. And Christ is making death's captives now his captives, and in resurrection, raising all that had been held captive by death, which in fact is the whole of humanity. Uh, this is depicted in Orthodox iconography, which is, which is in the West, after about a thousand years, you had a tendency to often portray Christ raised as a lone individual, emerging from the empty tomb, stepping over the soldiers that are painted mm -hmm. in fear. Uh, but in the East, they maintain this original image of resurrection actually taking place in Hades. And so the, the typical iconography is that Christ is descending and ascending so kind of simultaneously. You see this in his fluttering robe. He's descended down into death. The gates of death have fallen beneath his feet in the form of a cross. So, so the cross is present there. And uh, beneath the, the fallen gates of hell in the form of a cross are broken chains and locks. And sometimes there's death is personified as a demon that's tied up beneath the feet of Jesus. But most importantly, it's what Jesus is doing. He's reaching forth and taking hold of an old man and an old woman, grabbing them by their wrists. In other words, they're not grasping onto Jesus. Jesus is... Think of a small child that you would be walking with, and maybe they begin to walk out without paying attention into the street. You just grab mm -hmm. them by the wrist. And Jesus is taking hold of the wrists of this old man and this old woman and pulling them up out of their graves, out of their tombs. And, of course, the old man and the old woman are Adam and Eve, Adam and Heva, representing humanity and thus the early Christian hymn. Christ has... Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down by death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. And so this, this is not some sort of uh, modern, innovative way of talking about the cross. This is actually the earliest way of talking about what Christ, the sent into death, achieved, and that was to liberate those that were held captive by death. Well, there is this idea of inclusion. Uh, you see it also, Second uh, Corinthians 5.14 talks about how we are, Christ is, uh, Paul's talking about how we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. Mm -hmm. And then you're careful to connect the crucifixion always with the resurrection. So right. there's a sort of a single movement that's happening, yes. and you can see evidence that it's not just happening to Christ, but it's happening to all who are in Christ, which is yeah. arguably humanity. 
Right. When, when I say the crucified Christ, I always mean the crucified and risen Christ. And we always understand the cross in light of the resurrection. For without the resurrection, look, we would never have heard of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Just one of thousands and thousands crucified. Yeah, yeah there's this kind of misguided notion I think some people have that in the first century, crucifixion was rare and exotic. It wasn't. It was appallingly common. The Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people. And one of the scandals of, of Good Friday is that Jesus wasn't even afforded the tiny dignity of his own execution. He was but one of three that day. So, yeah. And uh, they also, I understand it, they also stripped them, yes. of, yeah. which we don't usually see that portray yeah. but that well, the, the, the point was to shame them right as well yeah yeah uh the public nakedness of crucifixion was a way of heaping shame upon that which is already going to be a torturous execution and even today in artistic depictions of christ crucified we don't we don't embrace that level of realism and i think that's appropriate uh, but Paul does something then very creative with this. And Paul says, you know, no, knowing that, you know, people understood how crucifixion worked. They were crucified naked. It was part of the, the shame of uh, crucifixion. But Paul says, no, 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 no. It, he said, it, it's not Christ who's put to public shame, but it's the principalities and powers. That the cross strips them of their pretense of wisdom and justice, and shows that they're really only motivated by naked bids for power. Yeah, in stripping, in stripping Christ, they stripped themselves. Exactly, exactly. That, that the shame did not fall upon the Son of God. It fell upon the principalities and powers. That's why Paul says if the principalities and powers, the rulers of this age, had understood these things, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, you conclude your chapter on Christ's harrowing of hell this way. In his harrowing of hell, Christ has filled even death with his saving presence. Truly, it can be said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Psalm 193.8, New King James Version. Today, for a human being to enter into death is not to encounter death, but to encounter Christ, to encounter him as both judge and savior, unquote. And so that's a very powerful way and hopeful way to conceive of death as a way in which we will all encounter Christ as judge and savior. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Yeah, uh, I, I think that is, that is salvation spoken of in the grandest of terms that um, Christ spans the entirety of heaven and earth. He comes from heaven he enters humanity, the Logos made flesh, and he continues all the way down into death, that in the wonderful language of Paul, he might fill all things everywhere, everywhere with himself. And so indeed, to enter into what we think of as death is in fact to encounter Christ, because Christ now fills all. Death is now no longer a place of where God is absent. God in Christ fills all things everywhere. So to encounter death is not to encounter death. It's to encounter Christ as judge and savior. And then how, how that all works out, how that plays out, what, what the process is about how judgment and salvation work 
post-mortem. Well, this is this is for a discussion, but I think it's set forth very clearly in Scripture that's what happens. I think one of the things that I find surprising is that in the Protestant world, and I, and I think there are reasons for this, but in the Protestant world, it's sort of just assumed, without merit, without reason, that no further salvific work can occur after death. That, you know, and sometimes they'll trot out Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed that each man die once and after this, the judgment. I say, yeah, of course. Then what? <laughs> then what? Uh, in, in Revelation, Christ says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, what, what does he do with those keys? What does he do with them? And so we enter into death. We encounter Christ. Certainly as judge, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody gets away with anything. You, you, may, you may, probably not, but you may successfully get away with everything in this life. But in the end, you'll stand before the one with whom we have to do, before whose eyes all things are naked and laid bare. Yeah, even if we don't experience remorse for what we do here, if somebody just seems to trip through life yeah. doing all manner of evil gleefully, right? Um, that doesn't mean that uh, they got away with it. They don't know. They'll stand before the one who has the eyes of fire, and the eyes of fire will burn into them and see everything, and it will all be addressed. I just hold to the hope that at, it's at that point that the reclamation project can begin. What that involves, how long that takes, I don't know. Uh, you know, but I, I just don't see uh, death as speaking the final word, because then it sounds to me like death still has the keys, <laughs> and death doesn't have the keys. Jesus has the keys. Well, in your chapter entitled The Lamb Upon the Throne, you wrote, Christ crucified is Christ glorified. The cross was not shame, and it was and is glory. It was not defeat. It was and is victory. It was not failure. It was and is the salvation of the world. Jesus Christ not only saves the world through the cross, he also rules the world from mm. the cross. The kingdom that Christ established through his cross comes without any wars, without any battlefields, without any killing of enemies, unquote. And I like that quote, especially how Christ crucified both saves and rules the world nonviolently from the cross. But ever since Augustine, the church in the West has become enmeshed with violence and warfare. Christians have also come to use the book of Revelation to picture the return of Christ as a warrior who will finally once and forever shed the blood of his enemies by the sword. So the original nonviolent Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gets supplanted by the warrior Jesus in the book of Revelation, who inspires legions of warrior Christians to this day. And you finally look forward to Christ casting away into hell forever, everyone whose name is not written in the book of life. So what about all of this? Yeah. Um, in the book, the book of Revelation has to be read properly. It really does. Um you cannot literalize the book of Revelation, and nobody consistently does that. What they do is they do it arbitrarily, just on a whim. So if I, so if I ask people, 
Is Jesus literally now? Literally. Is he literally a slain lamb with a slit throat, seven horns, and seven eyes? And I say, well, no, no, that's that's symbolic language. Is Jesus going to literally return on a flying white horse and kill 200 million people with a sword that comes out of his mouth? Oh, yeah, I believe that's literal. And I just want to say, well, explain your system here. Uh, Everything is symbol. And one of the most interesting symbols is that at the center of the throne of God, we find a lamb slain, but standing. That is, put to death, but risen. But, we, but it is a lamb, and it is a slain lamb, though risen. And so the cross is the throne of God. When Jesus went to the cross, I mean, you know, we're, this is being recorded during the season of Lent, and we think of that as the journey toward the cross. As Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem, and he's told them on at least three occasions that they're going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, condemned, crucified, and raised on the third day. As they're journeying to Jerusalem, two of his disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, they said, Jesus, when you enter into the glory of your kingdom, we want to occupy significant positions in your administration. We want to sit at your right and at your left. We'll be Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink, be baptized with what I'm about to be baptized with? They said, we're able. He said, well, yeah, you may, but to be at my right and at my left is not for me to determine. It's for whom it has been appointed by my Father. Now, how does Jesus' kingdom come? It comes through the cross. So, the, the crown was made of thorns. His acclamation was my insult. His procession was to carry his cross through the town. And his enthronement was to be nailed to the cross. But it's, it, it still is his true um, inauguration. And who's on his right and on his left? Those two that were crucified with him. So that's why Jesus says, to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. You're actually asking to be crucified with me. And so many Christians still haven't got that message. And they still think that ultimately the kingdom of God is going to come in the same basic way that the kingdoms of Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Rome, Greece, those ways. But it doesn't. Uh, Jesus is not, it's not Jesus the Great, like Alexander the Great. It's Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, and his way of reigning and ruling is cruciform, not through the conventional violence of tyrants and kings and conquerors that have come before. Another cue that we get to this, and I'm thinking about this because uh, we have Holy Week coming up. We're going to get to Palm Sunday pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. and Jesus comes into Jerusalem you know, riding on, there's an argument, uh, donkey or colt, you can get into yeah. different discussions about that. But the main point is he's not riding in a, on a war horse. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Pilate had arrived, you know, Pilate's headquarters, the Roman governor's headquarters are in Caesarea. It's a nice climate, it's Mediterranean. There's a palace there. It was actually one of Herod's palaces that, that the Roman governor said, well, you know, we're going to, this is where we're going to reside. And, but, but, you know, the, the Roman governor has to be in Jerusalem for Passover. Passover is a celebration of national liberation. 
it would have a rough equivalence to how the 4th of July would feel for Americans because mm-hmm. it's a celebration of Israel being liberated from their bondage in Egypt. All right. Now the, the Jewish people are subjugated by the Roman Empire. If a revolt is going to occur, when is it going to occur? Probably during Passover, the celebration of national liberation. So the Roman governor has to be present in Jerusalem. So how does he arrive? He arrives astride his, his war horse and with the equestrian legions you know, at his side, and that's his entrance. If you want to even press a little bit further, he would be entering from the west because he's coming from Caesarea down the coast and that way. Jesus is coming up from Jericho, so he's coming from the east. So they're coming two different ways, two different approaches, and Jesus doesn't ride the war horse. He rides, the, let's say this, the donkey's colt, as, as in, in many ways kind of a mockery of the military parade of Pontius Pilate. And so in utter humility, uh, not brandishing swords, but only, you know, the only weapons they have are palm branches. And this this is Jesus uh, showing that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, and it never becomes like the kingdoms of this world. If ultimately God is going to save the world by uh, just violent conquest. Well, then the whole point of Jesus and cross and death and resurrection is pointless. We could have just sent in this, the army. And, and Jesus renounces this in the Garden of Gethsemane. When when uh, Peter suggests, okay, let's attack with the sword. And Jesus says, no more of this. And he says, look, if I, if I want a war, I can call. I don't need you and your two piddly swords. I can call on 12 legions of angels. But no, this is not the way, and it never is the way, and it never will be the way. The way of the cross is the way eternal. One of the things I like that you said in your book is that Christ on the cross is not just something we look at, but something we look through in order to see who God is. About Mm -hmm. this, you wrote, when we behold Christ crucified, we can say this is exactly what God is like. And then you include this sentence inspired by Balthazar, which mm-hmm. you strategically place in all your books. I could say that this sentence, this single sentence encapsulates BZ in a particularly profound way. Here it is. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So unpack that a little bit. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's a little game I play. And it, it probably probably ten of the books I've written. This this line shows up. It is a it is a paraphrase of something that something along the lines of that appears in Love Alone Is Credible by Hans Urs von Balthasar. But it's not an exact quote. It's kind of a paraphrase. And um, yeah, I mean, just, I'll just I'll just say it again. Just listen carefully. Being disguised. So, so there is, you're not immediately going to recognize it because there is a disguise in place. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly, because at first glance it's ugly, ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically, I mean, how often are the truths of God presented in the form of paradox? Paradoxically, the clearest revelation of who God is. And in Mark's gospel, the first gospel actually written, you have this interesting moment where, where the people that should really know who Jesus is don't seem to fully get it. 
the demons do, and Jesus silences them. But then in some ways, the revelation of the Gospel of Mark reaches its climactic moment when it's the centurion, the pagan Roman centurion who says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so, you know, when Paul, reflecting on his first mission to Corinth, writing his first epistle to them, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think most people hear that as Paul saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to limit myself. I'm, I'm not going to talk about this or that aspect of God's nature. I'm going to limit myself. Uh, no, that's not a limiting statement. Because in one way or another, everything that can be known about God is somehow present at the cross. And to say, okay, I'm going to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not limiting the revelation of God. Well, I was thinking about that sentence. It was a beautiful sentence that you had written, and uh, that was inspired by Baltazar. So I decided, well, what can I come up with? Inspired by Baltazar, inspired by BZ. So here's my sentence I, I came up with, inspired by you all. The crucifixion is the apocalypse of God. There you go. Oh, I love that. Yeah, the unveiling, the revealing of God, which is shocking. And, you know, I mean... One of the first things I do early on in the book is try to recover some of the scandal of it. Yeah. And so that the most depicted story image in human artistic endeavor is that of a man nailed to a tree. That at least anthropologically must be significant. And it seems very strange and very bizarre. Um, and so how do you account that this strange image has been replicated billions of times over the last 2,000 years? And somebody says, well... Uh, religion has something to play with it. Indeed it does, but it is a counterintuitive religious image to say the least. I mean, this is not raw, shining like the sun, or Krishna riding triumphantly in his chariot, or even Buddha sitting in the tranquil bliss of enlightenment. This is a man being tortured to death by crucifixion. And that this becomes how we depict God is is not something that's intuitive. I think it's Fleming Rutledge who says in her book, and I quote it in mine, um, the cross is far and away the most irreligious image, idea. I'd have to look it up exactly what she says. The, the, the cross is far and away the most irreligious item. <laughs> what did she say? To ever enter into the heart of faith. I don't know. I don't think I could actually find it. So I'm not going to try to find it. But that, that's, a, that's an approximation of how I quote, of, of the quote from her. Um, so in some ways, one, one, of the things that, one of the first things I want to achieve with this book is for people no longer just to blithely assume the cross is immediately, under, uh, immediately understandable. Um, Paul acknowledges this, you know, Paul, I mean, when Paul's writing on the cross, he's doing so, you know, within 20 years or a little more. So it's very recent, this event. And he understands that unless you believe that the cross is followed by resurrection and the cross is understood in the light of resurrection, then you only have two choices. It's either blasphemy, as the Jews would say, or just utter foolishness, just just ridiculous, as the pagan Gentiles would say. 
Um, so it is, it is an image of God that is deeply counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, I thought I thought of uh, connecting the crucifixion and the apocalypse or the eschaton partly because of the way David Bentley Hart proposes that the eschaton is the final revelation or the apocalypse of the moral character of God. So mm -hmm. as Hart succinctly ties it together, quote, the moral destiny of creation and the moral nature of God are inseparable. And so for me, the through the cross, I see the apocatastasis. Yeah. Amen. I, I don't know what else to add. <laughs> uh, yes. Amen. Okay. <laughs> well, in the final chapter entitled The Center That Holds, you summarize the main points of Paul in Colossians 1, 23 to 20 this way. In a scant eight verses, Paul gives us no less than a dozen stunning Christological diamonds. Christ is the fullness of God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the creator of all things. Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Christ is before all things. Christ is the one for whom are all things. Christ has first place in all things. Christ has redeemed and forgiven us. Christ is the head of the church. Christ has reconciled all things to himself. Christ holds all things together. Paul's poem ends with a universal shalom accomplished through the cross. The eschatological hope for the restoration of all things is found in the Christological confession that all things have been created through and for Christ. The higher our Christology, the greater our hope for apocatastasis, the universal, the universal restoration spoken of by Peter in Acts 3.21. Christ is the origin and the telos of all creation. And so I really resonate with this, you know, because of what I was saying before, but the, that Christ is not just the end. He he is the telos. And there's a, there's a little bit of a difference there between saying Christ is the end. It's like, oh, that's all, folks. Right. Whereas right. the telos is the fulfillment right. of everything. The goal, the purpose. Yeah. The, the, the purpose from which you for which you began the whole project. It's the completion, the goal, not not the termination. Well, I really yeah. liked it. I really liked how you talked about the higher our Christology, the greater our hope for apocatastasis. And in a way, my journey has been related to reflecting on grace, but it's also been the higher and higher my Christology got, it finally just overtook everything, that everything mm -hmm. has happened in and through and for Christ. And once I even started thinking of Christ as the one in and whom and for through all, whom all things are created, and yeah. then somehow he is the one that then humbles himself and returns it all to the Father. It's this kind of beautiful eschatological dance that was anticipated even from the beginning of creation that really ties everything up beautifully. And then if that's the picture that you can see through the cross, or through the crucifixion, then indeed, even though it is ugly to behold, once you look at it that way, then you can see that beauty through it, which is, I think, kind of what happened to you or what was happening to you in all kinds of different ways through the different kinds of crucifixes. Each one of them uh, was showing you a different angle or a different way to see that. Yes. Amen. Um, we're kind of talking about some ideas that are in chapter 19, the center that holds, which is my favorite chapter, by the way. I mean, if I can, if it's, if it's, permitted for an author to have. Well, I will say, I will say this about your books. They tend to build towards a crescendo and end in poetry. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and uh, that's, yeah, 
Yeah, you've got me figured out there, David. That's true. Um, I, I start with I start with some poetry in that chapter. I start with William Butler Yeats' uh, very famous poem, "The Second Coming," which is actually a, a despairing poem in the wake of World War One and anticipating something even worse to come, which. He was prophetic in that sense because, you know, then comes World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also bring up the point that that's not the only thing that that Yeats had to say because he also talked about Christ being the uncontrollable mystery upon the stable floor. And I, I work with that. Um, but but I, I and so I'm picturing and I, and I use some uh, there are 16 art images in the book and one of them is, the final one is by Ivanka Demchuk. She's this young Ukrainian modern iconographer in Lviv. And she graciously gave me permission to reproduce that for free. I offered to pay her, but she said, no, just put it in there. And it's it's an apocatastasis icon, you know, with Christ raising Adam and Eve. But it's done in a more modern style. And I, I talk about that in the book. But um, if we're talking about eschatology and the cross, this is where we go to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul has a lot to say there. And it's interesting because, because Paul is, is, in one sense, just addressing a pastoral concern that people have about um, what happens at death and what about those that have already died. But then he takes flight and really begins to set forth in his high Christological manner the ultimate achievement of Christ in death and resurrection. And at one point he says in this treatise on resurrection, he says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And it keeps building, building, building. And then it sums up that in the end, God may be all in all. The 15, first Corinthians, all. yeah, First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. That was yeah. Uh, that inspired Origen and lots of early church fathers. That was their eschatological. They got their eschatology there. Rock on. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually, I mean, if you're going to take those words seriously, and these are not cloaked in, um, you know, Jewish apocalyptic symbol. Paul is just saying what he believes, that the end of the story of redemption is that God is all in all, Theopas and Bottas. And that seems to have very profound implications. Well, I would say that these days it's tremendously difficult for us as human beings to be positive and hopeful considering the mass of problems that we face collectively. So we need a hope that is bigger than everything which comes against us. And about this, you write, but we live between the worlds, the world that is and the world to come. It's true, as Yeats says, things do fall apart and there are centers that cannot hold. Anarchy and blood-dimmed tides are loosed upon the world. But it's also true that they will not have the final word for our world. For by the blood of his cross, of his cross Christ redeems all things. So, what is it like for you to look at the news, to see what's going on, to see all the chaos and the turmoil and the threat, and to look through that and to see a center that holds? Yeah, we kind of have to do two things simultaneously. Uh, I think it's, in, it's, it's 
it's incumbent upon us as, as those who believe to hold to an ultimate hope so that we don't despair in the moment that in the end, every tear will be wiped away. Death will be undone. There's no more sorrow or sighing. All of these things have passed away. Those are the former things. And so we hold that eschatological hope of God being all in all. But we, but we also do have to occupy the present moment with concern and compassion. And I see this in Jesus in the raising of Lazarus. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He has delayed purposefully to raise Lazarus. He tells his disciples, we've got to go wake up Lazarus. They're, they don't get it. If, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. He's, he's dead. Okay. And I go to waken him from death. Jesus, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And he arrives there and he arrives at a scene of sorrow. And the Mary and Martha are both terribly upset and others are weeping. And this is where we get the, the, the famous, pithy, succinct little verse, Jesus wept. Now, if you pause for a moment, you say, well, it's, it's going to be a matter of minutes. He's going to go to the tomb. He's going to tell them to roll away the stone. Uh, one of the sisters is going to say, by this time, there'll be a stench. He says, believe you'll see the glory of God. They roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. There you go. And yet Jesus inhabits that moment of sorrow, I could say it with them, but I'll say it this way, with us. And so even though there is the eschatological hope of the restoration of all things, still in the present moment, it's also appropriate to shed a tear and to, and to weep with those who weep. So, so we have to, we hold these things in tension and we don't, we don't so focus on the moment of tears that we lose sight of hope and despair but we don't so blithely just rush off into an easy eschatological answer that all things shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, and we don't even have any concern for the present moment. So we have to navigate those, but I think it can be done. I want to thank Brian Zond for coming on the podcast today. Unfortunately, at the end of the interview, I had an interruption in my internet service, so I wasn't able to say goodbye to him and thank him for his time. However, I would like to encourage everybody to go to the Word of Life Church podcast where you can hear Brian preaching through a Lenten series of sermons based out of his new book, and also check out the BZ Basement Tapes. And these are a series of interviews that they're doing in-house at the Word of Life Church, and I would encourage everybody to go and check that out as well. So thank you once again, BZ Brian Zond for all of your inspiration and insight. We love you and appreciate you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.